This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, committed to making healthcare more affordable for the health of America. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, to discuss, among other topics, burnout among uh, healthcare providers. A trained physician, Senator Cassidy is also ranking member of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Senator Cassidy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paige. So last week, a federal survey of American workers published by CDC said health workers feel burnout more frequently than they did before the pandemic. What are you hearing about that? And as a physician, do you have any insights into why that is? You know, I was just speaking to a physician yesterday, and she was saying how when she went into medicine, and believe me, I totally relate to this. Uh, when you're a pre-med, you read these stories, this fiction about all these people, and you're connecting with patients, and you're preventing death, and it's incredibly motivating. And she says now, instead of actually speaking to her patients, she's typing on a computer. So all the gratification that you expect, that you hope, that you long for when you're in pre-med with all the idealism is kind of wrung out like a a sponge uh, in which you are instead spending 16 minutes per encounter on the electronic medical record. And, And why do I emphasize that? Because your typical encounter is only 15 minutes. Think about that. The entirety of the encounter, and then one minute more, could be spent on the EHR instead of telling the patient, listen, you have cancer, but there's hope. You have cancer, but there's a cure. And then speaking to the spouse, I know you, don't worry, there's hope. You don't get that gratification. Instead, you're sitting there pinking away. Now, as it turns out, you're not doing it when you're speaking to them. You still do half of it, but then you do the other half at night when you want to go home and have the gratification of speaking to your family. And so you get squeezed in your personal life. You get squeezed in the time with the patient. Oh, my gosh, it's exasperating people to want to do it. I think we've all had that experience, right, where we're talking to our doctor and there's a screen in between both of us. And you're not talking to the doctor. You're talking to the air as your physician is typing on the screen. Exactly. Um, well, so let's talk about uh, both, uh, well, first, retention of, of healthcare professionals. And we know that we have shortages in, in primary care, especially in some different specialties. But what can we do to incentivize healthcare professionals to stay on? Make it more rewarding. They have physicians who are retiring at 50, 55, and I could say even 70. You might say, well, 70. No, when I started practice, docs would continue working into their 80s. They loved it. It was a vocation. Um, And now uh, they're looking to get out. And when they have their 401k topped off, they either cut back their practice. I like to say the obstetrician stops delivering babies. She starts doing Botox, um, which is cash, no hassle. And she goes home at at four or five or three. Uh, So you can keep people in the workforce more by returning it once more to a vocation as opposed to being a cog in a machine. Secondly, you can have more productivity. Um, when, I was, when I went into practice, um, yeah, you'd see 30 patients a day. You could do it. Uh, and now it's, it's, it's for many far less because again, so much time is consumed doing things not directly related to seeing patients. We can become more efficient. We can extend the lifespan. And then obviously it would be nice to have more physicians. 
But I want to be devil's advocate here for a minute because, of course, I've been following the health policy conversation for a long time, and there's a lot of talk about electronic medical records and all of the conveniences that come with that, right? As a patient, I can go online. I can see all of my test results. When I go to another provider, they can receive the record. Those are important, right? So how do we kind of balance that need to have the, you know, the, the consistency and the updated electronic records, but also that person-to-person interaction? Think about it. The most highly, one of the most highly trained people in American society. A neurosurgeon goes through four years of med school, uh, of, of college, graduates at the top of her class, goes to med school, uh, four years there, uh, goes to residency, which is seven years. If you had a fellowship, it's two more. And so she's 34 or 35. And now this person who's incredibly highly trained is entering data. What a waste of an education. Now, wouldn't it be better if the insurance companies instead committed or the federal government instead committed? Okay, we know that, we are, that we're using a, a physician's time poorly. We're going to pay 20% more if that 20% is used for a scribe. That way you would actually not be taking the most highly trained, educated person in our society and making them into a data enterer, but you're doing a little bit of an epi payment in which you'd have somebody far less trained, but who would go around obeying HIPAA and everything else, putting in the data so the physician would be just as efficient. Medicare's not doing that. Insurance companies aren't doing that. But that would be a way to both return reward to the, to the doc, he's looking into your eyes, telling you that you have hope, and at the same time, making them more efficient. I want to talk about something else for just a minute, and that is private equity investment in the healthcare industry, which has surged over the past decade. Um, by one estimate, staffing in 30% of all emergency rooms is now overseen by private equity firms. Um, according to another survey, more than 70% of emergency physicians agreed that uh, the corporatization of their field has had a negative uh, or strongly ne- negative impact on the quality of care. Um, do you see these trends as troubling? would love to hear what you think about that. Well, it depends. I mean, there's no one. Insurance companies and hospitals hate private equity uh, because it's easier to deal with a physician if she or he is in a, a small group or in solo practice. They have no bargaining power. You can just kind of squeeze them and get them what you want. Um, and so, so they hate it. Um, when done right, private equity takes the physicians, put them in, puts them into a larger bargaining group and allows them to get a better rate of return and, and better working conditions. When done poorly, again, once more, you're a cog in a machine. So I think you have to differentiate between that which is done well, that which is done poorly. But it's a total reaction. As insurance companies have consolidated, they have more bargaining power. Hospital systems have consolidated. And so then you have the physician by herself. Again, once more, getting squeezed. So if you have somebody who puts them together, gives them bargaining power, helps them bill, helps them say this and that and that, it's a little bit of the corporatization, but it's better than being flotsam and jetsam on a wave being tossed by the, by the wind. Uh, so um, you can argue it's just a natural reaction to that which is occurring in other areas of the healthcare ecosystem. Is there a role for Congress or regulators here? I think there is a role for Congress in healthcare, absolutely. Um, whether it's going to regulate the centralization of insurance companies and hospitals, maybe. For example, when I was elected uh, to the House, it took office in 2009. At that point, there was a, there was a hearing that uh, I think the top 64 markets in the U.S., it's off the top of my head, had such market concentration of hospitals as to constitute antitrust. 
in which the hospitals could now fix prices and the insurance companies had no, no choice as to where to go. So uh, could there be antitrust action by FTC in selected markets for the concentration, be it insurance hospitals or maybe physicians? Uh, I think that's something that the FTC should explore and I think is exploring. When we're talking about also protecting patients, um, I know that there was a lot of work uh, a couple of years ago on surprise medical billing, and you were very involved in that. Can you quickly just give us a synopsis of, of or, or your assessment of where we are with that? I know that the industry has really pushed back to incorporating some of those new requirements, but where where are we, in your view, in incorporating those things? You got a lot in that question page. First, uh, the surprise medical billing bill has been fabulously successful. Um, averaging about one million surprise medical bills prevented per month. That's the good news. Uh, the administration has been very slow to put out some provisions of it, and providers, doctors have been very upset about that. But I will, I will just compliment we in the Congress who crafted that bill. We were very careful how it was crafted. And so because the administration in some cases has been totally wrong how they've, how they've written the rules, um, um, the providers have gone to federal court and have won on three to four separate occasions, pushing back upon how the administration did the, inter uh, the um, uh, independent dispute resolution boards. Uh, so, um, and now they finally started putting out rules that reflect congressional intent. So on the one hand, it is preventing surprise medical bills. That's progress. On the other hand, it has given insurance companies leverage over physicians in terms of how to get recompensed for bills in which there is a dispute. Now that, of course, is encouraging physicians to further consolidate because otherwise you have no bargaining power against the insurance company who's using, who's abusing the rules as written, or I should say using the rules that were abusively written by the administration to give the insurance companies more power. We, when we wrote that, had a delicate balance. Insurance companies, hospitals, providers, all had a little bit that they lost, a little bit that they gained, so they're all pleased. The administration put their thumb, elevated the insurance companies, and now you've got people in cash flow problems consolidating to do battle with them. Uh, it, was, it was predictable, and the administration totally fumbled this. What steps would you like to see now? To, to well, they've actually, their latest set of rules are finally making progress. But for example, to, to prevent cash flow problems for the small practice, which is to say to allow the insurance company just to hold back on that cash to put them in a bad way, we required an interim payment. We required that the qualified payment amount, uh, we gave certain criteria that would have to be used. Um, um, the administration instead went to a kind of a baseline Medicare rate, which is what we definitely didn't want to do. Um, other things that we did that just equalized the playing field. And I will say that the last set of rules, two to three years after they should have been put out in the first place, are beginning to equalize that playing field. I want to ask you about your relationship with uh, Chairman Sanders. And Why do you smile? <laughs> we, I think we've, we've heard that there are some tensions there. Uh, and you recently um, have expressed frustration with how he's running things, including alleging he improperly used committee resources for a recent hearing on nursing shortages. How would you describe your relationship at this point? Well, um, cordial. Uh, and it's my desire to work with Chair Sanders. 
um, we have a difference of a viewpoint as to how things should be done. As regards what you just described, uh, he had an a, a off-site committee hearing where the nurses are striking up in New Jersey. And it's pretty clear to me, it was there to show solidarity with the, with the nurses, not to do a neutral fact-finding mission that theoretically is the mission of the, of the, um, uh, of the committee. And so instead of being an impartial legislator, it was a kind of, I'm with you nurses, let's stick it to them. And he may dispute that, but I think others have felt that way too, looking at it objectively. Um, if we want to turn Congress into a totally, even in our theoretically nonpartisan activity, um, a partisan uh, machine, uh, I think that further degrades the trust of the American people and into our institutions. Uh, secondly, uh, I think we have to consider things. And there's a saying in internal medicine, don't just do something, think. Uh, so we'll pass legislation which is just going to shove billions of dollars at a problem without ever scratching our head, having a hearing, and thinking, will this solve the problem? Uh, one example, um, uh, the House, which is, which is totally committed to not increasing mandatory spending without an offset, um, uh, will put forward a bill, which is paid for, passes unanimously, Democrats and Republicans. Can you imagine that on the House right now? Um, and, and in our committee, uh, instead, the alternative Chair Sanders uh, suggests is billions of dollars more unpaid for, unscored, and without full consideration of the factors. Now, I want to pass a bill, not, not send out a press release. And so I would prefer that we say, okay, this is how much money we have. This is what we can get through. Let's kind of, let's kind of you know, modulate what we're doing in order to pay for it and to get it passed into law before the funding deadline, as opposed to six days before the funding line deadline, coming up with something unscored, unpaid for, without policy, which has been fully considered. Do you have hopes that you, you can work together? Um, I mean, w w what needs to happen to sort of repair that relationship and move forward? And I know you have some several legislative things on your plate over the next month and a half. We're talking about funding for different health care programs, et cetera. Well, I'm always optimistic. And nothing is accomplished by a cynic. Uh, and so there's some things that I would like to work on that I think we can work on together. And I'll continue to propose those. And I hope, and I hope uh, Chairman Sanders will propose such things to me. There's a bill that he um, proposed to address the primary care physician shortage to uh, provide funding for community health centers. Um, and I know you're opposing that bill. Is that more related to the content of the bill or the process? Again, it's a $26 billion bill, which we have no hope to pay for. I mean, theoretically, you pay for things. You can put a bauble out there, which gets everybody excited. Oh, my gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have this windfall? Uh, but if you say, OK, what are the pay-fors within the help committee? What can we reasonably do? Is this kind of, oh, my gosh, all this money actually going to solve the problem or not? Uh, and, and so uh, and it turns out that I think the bill he proposed failed on each of those. Let me give an example. Uh, we have a nursing shortage in our country. Uh, but one of the issues with nursing is that there is a shortage of nursing slots. OK, let's put billions of dollars towards it. Turns out part of the problem with an inadequate number of nurses is that some states have regulations requiring that in order to be able to teach in a nursing school, you have to have a master's level. Okay, that's great. Except that there's a shortage of master level uh, nurses. They get hired away by hospitals, et cetera. Now, 
I practiced medicine for 25 years. Some of the best nurses who had the ability to teach um, younger nurses didn't have a master's, but they had been at a patient's bedside for decades. And they could just say, oh, listen, look at this patient. She's beginning to sweat. She's having chest pain. This is a myocardial infarction. Um, now, she's got diabetes, so the presentation is a little bit different, but let's call. Let's get some people in here and deal with this situation right away. That is so instructive. But they could not be an instructor in a, med in a nursing school because of state regulations. You can put as much money as you want from the federal level, but if a state has a law which prevents you from having an adequate number of faculty, it's not going to change things. Why don't we think about that? Why don't we act, don't just do something, think. And if you think about it, then you can actually come up with a policy change which incentivizes the states to make the changes so that the money they receive actually ends up educating more nurses as opposed to you know, being used for something which has to be spent, otherwise you lose the dollars, but does not increase the number of nurses. So that's frustrating to me. We've got to, got, dog it, we've got to increase our number of nurses, but it's got to be done in a way that you think about as opposed to just shove money at it. I want to ask you about uh, the committee's recent vote to move forward on uh, the nomination of Monica Bergnatoli to lead the NIH. And I know that, um, that you voted for that. Senator Sanders did not. And of course, he cited that she wouldn't uh, support or com commit to supporting uh, more extensive drug, drug pricing measures. But I'm wondering if you were able to extract any or, or asked for any commitments from her. Well, she committed to following the law. Uh, Chair, Chairman Sanders wishes to use uh, a provision that would allow a march in on intellectual property rights uh, for a pharmaceutical company if he disagrees as to how they are pricing their medicine. Uh, but the law pretty and clearly... And that's called march in rights, I believe. Yeah. But the law very clearly states you cannot do that over the issue of the price of a drug. So when Dr. Bertinoli says that she will follow the law... And the law says you can't do this just because of you don't like the pricing of a drug. That tells me she's not going to do it because of the pricing of the drug. And that's probably why Chairman Sanders uh, voted against her. Now, you may decide that that's a good thing, that you want to march in rights because of the pricing of the drug. But the fact is, Congress didn't, didn't give that, uh, that ability. And so we should follow the law. And laws are not just an inconvenience to be sidestepped. Laws are something which we are to follow. And if we don't like it, then we change the law. She said she's going to uh, follow the law, and that reassures me. So you may have seen recently our health and science team published an extensive series looking at the declining life expectancy among Americans. And one of the, the pieces talked about the red state, blue state divide and how we have seen even a steeper dips in red states, I think, including your home state of Louisiana. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, th this piece in particular talked about some of the different policies that perhaps have contributed to that you know, taxes on cigarettes. Um, can you respond to that a, a little bit? Um, you know, when, when we're talking about red state versus blue state, is it simplifying things too much to talk about policy, or is that an important part of the conversation? I don't know what policy you're speaking of. I'll put it this way. There's so many policies you could speak of. The, the principal reason for the declining life expectancy is what is, I think, shorthand called, um, was it uh, death from despair? 
um, doctors, uh, economists at Princeton, Case, and Deaton um, showed that non-college educated, principally white men, but other ethnic groups and gender and, the, and, and females as well, have had a declining life expectancy. And they're dying from things for like, for example, self-inflicted, uh, fentanyl overdose, um, cirrhosis. Uh, now, there's also other things that contribute to a lower life expectancy, uh, which are more correctable. Uh, HIV, for example. Now, HIV among a gay man typically is well, well controlled, but HIV among someone who got it from IV drug abuse and continues in their IV drug abuse is less well controlled. Less, they tend to be less compliant, and so therefore they're more likely to die early. Now, those are all social factors. Those are not medical factors. Um, now, if you want to look at areas, for example, uh, in uh, um, the, the southern counties of Ohio, uh, which until recently was considered a purple state, they have been affected by the deindustrialization associated with trade policy. Now, that deindustrialization left people without the kind of self-respect of a good-paying job. I'm an LSU fan, go Tigers, but everybody may remember Joe Burrow's um, Heisman Trophy speech in which he speaks of these communities and how he wishes to care for them. Now, why? If you look 30 years ago, those communities had country clubs and community pools and civic organizations, and they were vibrant communities. And then with the deindustrialization, they were left without jobs. And now they have high rates of fentanyl overdose, hepatitis C, and HIV. So some of what is described in this uh, is, is kind of indicative that, 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 that red states have been more hit by the deindustrialization of our country than blue states. If you look at the blue states and you look at the blue states where they have been hit by deindustrialization, you're going to see the same pattern. You can aggregate it to the mean and it doesn't look the same. But you break it out and then you go by county by county and you'll see that it is exactly the same. Death from despair. That extends beyond the power of medicine to affect efficiently. It is something for society to address. Well, our time is drawing short, Senator Cassidy, but I do want to ask you about probably the biggest issue in the news right now, which is uh, the Israel and Gaza war. And I know that you were recently part of a bipartisan trip of a group of senators that visited Israel. Uh, President Biden has asked Congress for $106 billion to support Ukraine and Israel, among other things. Do you think aid for Ukraine and Israel should be separate? So McConnell will make the point that um, uh, Iran, who is supporting Hamas, is also supporting Russia. Um, China is obviously threatening Taiwan and supporting Russia, that there is a link between our involvement with Taiwan, Russia, and the Israeli conflict in Gaza, uh, and that our military, which is attempting to do all three, uh, support all three operations, uh, would be more efficiently able to do so if there was a kind of coordinated approach to it. So that's the position that McConnell says. I think it's pretty persuasive. I will also add, though, by the way, that there's been 8 million people who have come across our southern border illegally since Joe Biden took president, uh, became president. I'm told at least 179 of those were on the terrorist watch list, those who have been apprehended. Of course, not everybody's apprehended. And so that said, we also need to include something for our southern border. So I think if you look at all of our security threats simultaneously, that's the rationale for that. And that's why I think McConnell is pushing it. And as a doctor, as you look at the situation in Gaza um, and, and the, the issue of aid for civilians, um, you know, 
What's your reaction? There was a piece in the New York Times from a pediatrician in Gaza this past Sunday where they're talking about just the deteriorating um, conditions there. They're sterilizing wounds with vinegar, drinking water ran out. Um, you know, as a doctor, what, it, what is that like to see those reports? Incredibly concerning. Uh, and we need to separate Hamas from the Palestinian people, and the Israelis do so. When we went to Israel, we met with Benny Gantz, who is part of the war cabinet. Uh, and he, he stressed, one of the first things he raised is that there should be humanitarian aid for the Palestinian people. And he says it has both moral and strategic reasons. Moral is self-evident. But I gathered from his strategic that if you allow aid to come into the south of Gaza, then that would encourage the Palestinians to migrate to the south, assuming that Hamas allows them to do so, to migrate to the south, to give them that humanitarian aid. Uh, but after they migrate to the south, then the center of Hamas's operation is in the north. So the strategic portion is it encourages the migration of civilians out of harm's way, which, is, which, which then frees, if you will, or minimizes the risk for civilian casualties in the north. And that's where the IDF is going after Hamas. Well, we are out of time. But Senator Cassidy, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paige. Hello, I'm Frances Steedsell as a senior writer here at The Washington Post, and I am delighted to be joined this morning by Cynthia Fisher, who is the founder of patientrightsadvocates.org, sorry, tripped over that, and Mark Miller, who is the executive vice president of healthcare at Arnold Ventures, and a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you, Thank Frances. You. So, Mark, I'd like to start with you and talk about the difference a little bit between regulations and reality. We had the ACA in 2010, and we've had further federal regulations in 2021, I think. How do those work, and what's the actual reality for a patient when it comes to hospital pricing transparency when they enter the emergency room and end up in the hospital? Well, I don't think there is any pricing transparency. Patients can ask questions, but I think often the providers and insurers either can't give them a complete answer or don't give them an answer if they're actually uh, aware of it. Our agenda is about affordability, and uh, we're focused on the affordability for the three actors that pay for all health care in the end. So in the commercial sector, your employers and your households pay premiums and co-payments. And of course, on the public side, it's the taxpayer. We think transparency is absolutely a critical first step in solving that problem, but you also have to go beyond uh, transparency. Uh, the senator uh, just noted the level of consolidation in hospitals. Now 90% of hospital markets are highly consolidated. They become price setters in their communities, and our prices are routinely 300, 250%, 300% of Medicare rates. So the patient doesn't know the price and often can't afford it once they, uh, once they encounter it, either through their co-payments and, of course, all that gets built into their premiums. So, so Cynthia, you've studied all of these things. And, and again, tell me a little bit more about what the ACA and the regulations of 2021 were trying to achieve and how hospitals can flaunt this, according to what Mark says. Well, since 2021, yeah. uh, the Trump administration put into play from the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act, 
a law that was sitting on this shelf, the part of the law to, that we have the right to know all prices. Right. Uh, and that is everywhere in healthcare, from the hospitals and the insurance companies and system-wide. So they put it into rule of law, and then Biden increased the fines when hospitals in the first six months were flouting the law mm -hmm. and not posting all of their prices online. So Biden increased it to over $2 million per hospital. So we have three presidents, bipartisan support, right. to give us all the right to know all prices. And price transparency is so truly transformative right. because it shifts the power to the patient right. and to employers and unions and all of us, even taxpayers and people on government plans, to be well informed in advance of care of the true prices and costs and to be able to make choices on where to get their care and have financial certainty to get the best quality of care they need at prices they know they can afford. So a quick follow-up for you. We have these bipartisan, I mean, presidents from two parties. What does this mean for Congress now? Is there bipartisan energy behind legislation to actually take us a step further and enforce? Absolutely. This is an over 90% issue across the board, bipartisan support from Congress. And in fact, the House currently has a bill of lower cost and uh, to, through Price Transparency Act that is sitting ready for votes uh, to the floor. And in the Senate, there's a lot of activity, bipartisan, from both Bernie Sanders and, and the Republican senators alike to see price transparency implemented because everyone has a story. Everyone has a story of being overcharged or have a family member that has experienced significant medical debt. We have 100 million people in this country with medical debt. And the problem is that without getting prices, people don't have the ability to have remedy and recourse. And price transparency, even with only 36% of the hospitals in our last report in July, of the 6,000 hospitals, 36% are fully complying with the law. Now there's enough data out there that patients are able to look at their medical bills and see if they were appropriately charged. And let me tell you, the power of that, we see patients like Mason Kochel from Grand, uh, Rap, Grand Junction, mm -hmm. Colorado, who was given an EpiPen at the end of a hospital visit, and he was charged $16,000 for that EpiPen, $16,500. And the insurance negotiated it down to $4,900. And he knew surely he had to be overcharged because he's only paid $70 for an EpiPen with a prescription in the past. How does he fight it? Well, he went to the hospital pricing file and found his insurance plan. The negotiated rate was $300. Still a crazy amount for an EpiPen. And a very educated person who could follow through on the, all these steps, Exactly. Right? I mean, that's the, exactly. one of the inequities here. But if Mark, we could just talk, comment on the House yeah. bill for a second. The, um, what the House bill does is it codifies the regulatory changes on right. the reporting of the uh, prices. A second piece, and we support that completely, a second piece of transparency that I would uh, say that the Congress needs to take up is also transparency into ownership. 
who owns the hospital, who owns the physician office, who owns the nursing facility, because this consolidated position that they have allows them to set prices throughout. That bill also goes on and embraces a policy that's referred to as site neutral policy. Mm. What, that pilot, what that is to address is when a hospital purchases a physician practices, they redefine the hospital or the physician practice as a hospital. And then on the commercial side, they add a facility fee. And on the Medicare side, they bill it through um, a higher uh, hospital rate. Let me just, just finish. And what this would do would say that for routine services in a physician offices, you cannot raise it to the hospital prices. So they're looking at transparency, but right. they're also taking action to try and make the price more affordable. So I have a very practical question. Here I am, I walk into the emergency room. I actually don't probably know what I need. Something has happened to me. How, how can I go about price shopping as a consumer. And, and this, is, this is why, with all respect, we, we absolutely embrace transparency. It is a first step, in, in my opinion. It is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I don't think the patient often is in a position that they can negotiate. If you're unconscious on a gurney, you're not right. negotiating. And I would go further. Employers that I talk to will say, I can't negotiate with a hospital system that owns I'm gonna, all the beds in my you know, midsize MSA, I cannot negotiate them if they own all the physician offices. So knowing the price is a first step. I think it brings the press, policy uh, makers, and patients to the table. But I think there are steps that have to be taken beyond that, like the site neutral policy. Cynthia, is the US a, a total outlier in this? Well, Francis, you yes. did an outstanding job the other week in writing about the crisis that we right. have in our country right now. You wrote about the Thank degradation you. of our life expectancy, that our life expectancy has declined drastically. We pay over two times any other developed country for healthcare, and yet we are dying four years younger than the average developed country in the world. So when we compare the statistics, we're dying eight years younger than someone living in Japan or Singapore, as your report. Or Portugal, or I wrote or Portugal, about. right. As your report mentioned. And yet we're being charged over two times more. So there is a pricing problem. And big part of that problem is as long as hospitals and insurance companies keep prices in the dark, they can charge whatever they want. And the overcharging is rampant. Right. And when we see prices now, just from the beginnings of these rules that allow us to see all hospital prices and also the insurance companies having to post all of the prices for each employer by every single provider. So now we have system-wide healthcare price transparency. Don't think that the industry hasn't made it difficult to see these prices. But now that the curtain has been pulled back, we're seeing wide price variation. So for instance, in many hospitals on the same day, you can see that childbirth mm -hmm. can be $6,000, the same codes, the same obstetrician team, and another woman may pay over $60,000, 10 times more by the same coding, non-complicated C-section in the same hospital, same team. That's outrageous. We're seeing that for drug prices. Rituxan, for instance, right. in one hospital, one injection, over $9,000 for one employer's plan, 
and another employer is paying a little over 800. Cynthia, one more question for you again. Uh, if I go to the supermarket and choose my cereal, I have a sense of which one is more expensive right in front of me, and I also have a sense probably of which one I've tasted at somebody else's house and I might want to pay a little bit more for. Choice is very hard, right, in medicine because I'm not sure I'm, even though I cover health, I'm not well equipped to make choices about my own health care. How, how does this market principle, how should it work in American healthcare? Where it is already working mm -hmm. is it is the employers that are managing healthcare by getting access to the prices and the numbers that are creating and designing plans for their members to be able to save their money substantially. And what are they doing with those savings? Coming together as a collective by choosing to get surgeries for instance, at the Surgical Center of Oklahoma, where the prices are locked in at 19000 for a knee replacement, that employer is saving over $80,000 where they may get a knee replacement at an opaque hospital. And so instead, they're adding to the wages and adding to bonuses for those employees. I'll give you an example. SEIU 32BJ, out of New York, New Jersey, 200,000 covered lives. They looked at their data on the prices and they saw that New York Presbyterian, great hospital, but was charging way over the other hospitals. So they decided after negotiating that they didn't get the fair price they wanted, that they would take them out of that plan. And within one year, they saved $33 million. Three years running, they ended up giving the biggest bonus in history to 200,000 people, $3,000, plus increasing wages the most ever. That's a huge win, and that's how it's working. So, Mark, Cynthia described very accurately this huge change in pricing. Can you talk a little bit more about the drivers behind that difference in pricing and what some of the solutions you believe might be to? Yeah, so again, I agree with that, and I know the organization well that you're refer referring to, but that's very much the exception at, at this point. Most employers feel that they don't have the leverage, and I think there's two issues. You've implicated the second one. The first one is consolidation. If you know the prices, but I own the market, then all you know at that point is, is that you're being overcharged. And then you have to do something. You either have to take collective action, and you have enough market power that you can say to the hospital, no, I'm not going to pay this price. But employers are often not in that position. Go to the patient. You've put your finger on the other issue. Most patients don't really have the knowledge to pursue their entire healthcare experience through their own knowledge. They have to do what the physician says. And if the physician is owned by the hospital, referrals and advice may be influenced in that way. And the prices, as I've tried to point out, uh, would um, be higher. So the driver in this, the key from my point of view, is the lack of transparency, the level of consolidation, and that an individual patient will never have the market power as one patient or the knowledge to negotiate fully on their own behalf. So the deck of issue policy I would right. go through is transparency, prices, as well as ownership, as I said. As uh, Senator Cassidy said, higher um, a review of like mergers and acquisition, FTC also at the state level. There are contracting practices the hospitals engage, in, engage in, gag clauses, most favored nation, that type of thing. And then I would move to things like the site neutral legislation in mm -hmm. uh, the House bill. 
Um, that piece of legislation is very small step, very small step. If they took a full step in Medicare, they would save $150 billion over 10 years. Wow. If they did it on the commercial side, it's more on the magnitude of three or $400 billion if they did it on the commercial side. But consolidation and lack of uh, transparency, those are the drivers. Cynthia, tell me a little bit more about consolidation. I did a story out of Connecticut some time ago, and I remember a small hospital, um, a very important hospital for its little community was being bought by an, another big hospital. It was described to me by some people as economies of scale because of the bigger organization, prices would come down. Others said exactly the opposite, that lack of market competition would drive prices up. What's your belief about what is happening with consolidation? Well, I think that's why we need the prices. Because right. if we see the prices everywhere, then we actually benefit from competition. And I disagree with Mark, because I do believe consumers uh, can have a choice. And let's take the prices of an MRI, for instance. So in a consolidated market, you may have much higher prices for MRIs. In fact, I would quote that in my husband's health insurance plan, his MRI price at Mass General is $7,400, and he needed two MRIs. So I would like to say you can't teach an old dog a new trick. <laughs> so I, of course, pressured him to shop. And on a trip to Florida, he was proudly able to use a firm called Green Imaging that uses excess capacity at standalone imaging centers, and for $400 got his MRI. And then, knowing he wanted to prove me even more, the next MRI he received, he got it scheduled at the time he wanted at Jupiter Hospital for $250. And it's a quality MRI, same level of quality. Mm. But now, what is his company doing? They're looking at prices of MRIs, steering everybody, creating a new plan design that lowers the cost of MRIs for everyone in the company. And what I'd like to show is that this is working. And it's not only working in the private sector with employers, like Harris Rosen in Orlando, Florida. 6,000 members, he owns Rosen Hotels. And it was reported a couple weeks ago that the average employer plan is paying $24,000 a year for a family of four, just for health care. Think about that. For many of us who are old, like myself, that's far higher than our starting wage. Right. He is able to do it for under $10,000 for all 6,000 employees because he got the numbers. He got not only the prices from the hospitals, but he also got all the claims receipts the receipts of payment, and manages it by the costs, and made direct contracting, cut out a lot of the middle players, and did direct contracting with the hospitals in the area. Well, Osceola School District is in Orlando, and they were in a $12 million deficit in their health plan, and they were in, they're the eighth poorest school district in Florida. They asked the Rosen Hotels to show them how they could save money. Within three years, doing the same as he, they have saved $41 million. And now, five school districts in Florida are looking to partner and do the same as Osceola. So not only at the private level, but at the, the school district level, this is meaning more teachers can be hired, a better teacher ratio, and it's a huge win 
for these employers. Okay, talking about wins, one last question I want to ask Mark about. We've got very little time. Solutions. What do you think needs to happen? I'm sorry, I missed Solutions. Me. What do you think needs to happen? We have very little time left, but tell me what you think. Yeah, well, one thing before I say that is, is that I do think there's, a, and I'm sorry, there's a disagreement, but there That's is. That's fine. I, mean, but it needs I think to be there quick. are shoppable <laughs> services, but I think a lot of the healthcare spend is driven by things that are not very shoppable. So I, I, I hope that you're right, and I th see some of that change, but I don't see it coming uh, quickly. Um, the deck, once again, transparency, greater uh, mergers and acquisition oversight. Uh, Anti-competitive contracting should be banned. This is like the Sutter um, court case. And then the, the stopping practices like the, the site neutral policy. You shouldn't be able to purchase a physician practice and then double the price overnight for the same physician, same services. That just should not be allowed. I love hearing different points of view. Thank you both very much for joining okay. us today. Mark Miller, Cynthia sure. Fincher, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning. Thank you for joining us both here in person and online. My name is Lana Wong, and I'm a founding member of the Diverse Women Moderators Bureau, Moderate the Panel. In this session, we'll be talking about bringing down the cost of care. As we've heard in the previous sessions, the U.S. healthcare costs are rising sharply, and it's actually roughly double the rates of inflation. And this is hurting everyone, patients, families, companies, government, and threatening our nation's economic stability, competitiveness, and health and well-being. So today, one in three Americans has healthcare coverage from a Blue Cross Blue Shield company. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is committed to making healthcare affordable by partnering with employers, government, and local and national partners, including the American Academy of Family Physicians. So we are lucky today to be joined by two healthcare leaders, both conveniently named Sean, uh, <laughs> who will help us unpack this critical issue. So uh, Sean Robbins is the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer for the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, which is a national federation of 33 independent, community-based, and locally operated Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies. And then we have Sean Martin, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians, which represents nearly 130,000 family physicians and medical students nationwide. So let's dive in and let's just hit the, the big issue here. Um, why does healthcare affordability remain such a significant issue both inside the Beltway and beyond? And what is your organization doing to try and tackle that situation? So the first Sean. The <laughs> first Sean. Good morning and thank you. Thank you for being here this morning. This is an issue that we see both as an economic imperative and frankly a moral imperative. Um, long before I was in healthcare, I happened to serve as the head of economic development for Governor John Kitzhopper in Oregon. And as we would go around and we would do the factory tours and the small business tours, one of the things we would consistently see and hear is that once we got beyond the workforce development question of these small business owners, the number two issue that was always on their list was the cost of doing business, in particular the growing cost of healthcare. And these are the small and medium-sized businesses that employ millions and millions of Americans. At Blue Cross Blue Shield, we cover 
450,000 small businesses and over 7 million employees in these small businesses. And the reality is that the escalating cost of care will disproportionately continue to fall on the backs of those businesses who are least able to afford it or shift costs within the system. And those are, as Senator Cassidy said in the earlier segment, sort of the backbone of these local communities. And the social fabric, the community fabric, often built around these small and medium-sized businesses. So that, from an economic imperative perspective, we see it as core to the future, uh, as a reason to fix this. Beyond that, the moral imperative, um, which I won't spend a lot of time on, but I hope hits people the right way, is when you ask Americans, can you afford care, 45, 50% of Americans will tell you they find it very hard or somewhat hard to be able to afford the care. And that's why I think it's so important to partner on the ground, like with family physicians and primary care doctors, um, to go upstream. So oftentimes, patients present after it's too late. Cost will be addressed in the long run, fundamentally, when we go upstream dealing with community and social factors. And when we attack the underlying cost structure of the healthcare system itself, not just shifting around who pays for it. So things like, as Mark Miller said in the last segment, around site neutral payment, those are beginning fixes to start to attack uh, the manipulations of the system that are costing all of us more money. Great. Turn it over to the other, Sean. Yeah, Lana, the, just saying thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and engage in this conversation. So for, for my members who provide almost 200 million unique patient visits per year, I think um, the cost of healthcare has become a barrier to entry to health. So it is separating people from living a healthy life, uh, pursuing things that allow them to maintain health for as long as possible. So cost has become a true barrier to well-being. And I think that's why you see such a robust conversation taking place in the country is because people feel that I can't live my healthiest life because I can't afford to pursue or do the things that I need. Family physicians largely are uh, deliverers of care, but they also are partners and facilitators of, of health. So they experience that frustration every single day of helping patients pursue health. So for, for us, I, th I think the answer is, is simple. Uh, we have a healthcare system that was largely designed and has been redesigned and redesigned um, around upstream high cost interventions for multiple decades, four or five decades. We have never really truly as a country invested in primary and preventive care. We've always um, allowed them to exist, but we've never really taken an appropriate step to prioritize primary and preventive care as a means of facilitating health. And the reason this is important is we know that primary care is the only um, healthcare service or provision of healthcare, if you will, that does three key things. One, it produces better health results. Um, two, it lowers per capita cost. And three, it increases life expectancy. And uh, no other provision of health is really able to say that. So the question, you know, really for me, is why after so many decades of seeing the trend line, have we not reversed course and come back to really appropriately fund um, that one connection that facilitates health? Yeah, that's a, a key point. But um, 
Just following on from the previous conversation about hospital billing and the site-neutral uh, payment that you mentioned, can you tell us, really break that down and tell us what exactly that means and how your organizations are trying to address that? Absolutely. It, and I think this is where the partnership with primary care and family doctors becomes so important. Over time, independent physicians have continued to be purchased by larger and larger hospital systems in particular. And as Mark Miller was talking about, I think quite elegantly, eloquently, is um, as they do so, those same physician practices that once operated independently, where some of the same procedures using the same equipment with the same doctor with the same outcome will now cost two to three times more for basic procedures that used to be done in a physician's office but are now labeled as a, a hospital outpatient facility. And as a result, able to charge significantly more to the patient to the insurance companies and all of us as taxpayers for the other subsidies and things like the ACA markets. So this isn't just a problem of, of um, uh, moving cost, it's increasing costs within the healthcare system. And one of the, one of the policies that we feel quite strongly about is, is if we were able to fix this loophole within the system, we would be able to squeeze out four to $500 billion of savings over 10 years just from this sort of one manipulation of the system or loophole of the system um, that Sean just talked about of layer after layer after layer, well-intentioned, well-meaning policies over time that over the last 50, 60 years have created some false incentives and some interesting um, places that frankly add up to more cost. Yeah. So, so Lana, for me, I think uh, picking up on Sean's point, I, uh, for me, it's always been about appropriate, appropriately paying for appropriate services at the appropriate place, right? And I, I think these layers of regulations and laws that we've passed over the years have, have um, you know, potentially distorted the definition of appropriateness. And um, when you look at transitions in the marketplace, so there was a healthcare ecosystem. Um, there is no doubt that physicians, insurers, and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies are in an ecosystem that are somewhat interdependent. What's what's become out of balance is the distribution of the funding, limited funding. We we don't need to spend more money on healthcare. We need to distribute it more appropriately. And I think that that has fallen out of out of balance. And I think what you're seeing is a conversation in the country about how to appropriately pay for appropriate healthcare services in the appropriate place. And, and, I, and I think that's the opportunity for us all come together and have a conversation about that. And um, there is no doubt that that is out of balance. Right, okay, well let's shift over to drug pricing. We can't talk about healthcare affordability without talking about the rising costs of drugs. What's your, what's your take, what, what can we do? Yeah, building off Sean's comment, just to put a, a, a period at the end of that sentence, you know, these are about people. These people are not abstract concepts. These aren't PowerPoints. These aren't white papers and research papers. These are our neighbors. These are our aunts, our uncles, our, our children, our grandchildren. This is healthcare. These costs are affecting their ability to access the system. And too often in certain markets, we're seeing somewhere between 25 and 40% of these people, these people who are our neighbors, not accessing the care they need or not taking the prescription drugs that they need, which ultimately leads to unhealthier outcomes and more cost in the long run in the system. So again, this is why primary care are the front lines of, of in my opinion, driving down costs out of the system. 
as part of that ecosystem, of course, prescription drug spending, but also beyond that, specialty drug spending, which is the fastest growth rate of any of the subsegments within the, the pharmacy space, these continue to escalate. We don't see an end in sight of when they will stop escalating, particularly around gene therapies, targeted therapies, and the specialty medications. So we have to think about this in three different ways, at least where we see it, is competition, changing how we pay for it fundamentally versus the fee-for-service mm -hmm. system. And I said three ways, two ways. <laughs> competition and changing fundamentally how we pay for it. Uh, we cannot continue to pay for drugs in this country the same way we've always paid for it, which is on a fee-for-service chassis. So we want to bring innovation to market. We want to continue strong research and development to be the leading drug manufacturer in the world and researcher with other partners in the world. And at the same time, we have to get the medication to people in a way that they can afford. And the reality is, is that we're going to have to change how we think about that payment structure and drive more competition into the market than currently exists today. More generics, less brand name. Yeah. So, so similar to my answer before, I, I think we've seen a distortion in uh, pricing models that are leading to uh, frustration around access and affordability. And, and there is no question that individual patients and their family physicians are facing a variety of challenges in trying to determine um, affordability and how that impacts the access and their ability to adhere to a, a pharmaceutical regimen for, for their health. And I think the thing that is frustrating to my members, maybe more so than, than the blues, is, is really not the blockbuster biologics and things that are really changing the trajectory of disease in the country. It's the generics. It's things like insulin and uh, things that people really depend on for, for multiple years of their life to, to have health maintenance or disease maintenance. And, and those products are becoming unaffordable uh, because of the the appropriate pricing levels that are are taking place and, and again we are we are creating cost barriers to health and, and I think that's a fundamental issue um, that deserves more conversation absolutely unfortunately our, our time is running off but um, I have a, a final question for you both we've been talking about healthcare affordability for years without seeing real results what would you say would be the way for us to change course it's a, great, it's a great question, and I think, number one, it's about putting the person that we serve in the middle of this conversation. Too often, the healthcare system is in an echo chamber talking to itself and talking about itself as the center of the conversation versus putting the person at the middle yeah. of the conversation and the people that we are all in service to. Number two, as part of that, we all have to come to the table differently than we have for the last 50 years. We are all part of the healthcare system. We all have a piece of this, both accountability and the solution set. The old food fighting of slinging things back and forth at each other in the political system has not yielded the results that we want on affordability. So we have to approach this conversation in an adult-like manner that's different than the way our predecessors approached this conversation who had similar roles that we did. Third, we have to put our money where our mouth is on some of this. So to the prescription drug point and the insulin example, Blue Cross Blue Shield companies have invested in a company called Civica to disrupt the supply chain to bring $30 insulin to the market. We will launch and bring those products to market in 2024 through Civica. That is not $30 out of pocket. That is $30 total cost. 
And that is an example of where we're trying to change the fundamental cost structure of the system to go from just moving the pieces around the chessboard differently to actually attacking the underlying cost of the healthcare system itself. Yeah, so for me, um, I, I agree, centering the patient. I, th I think we've used patient-centered as a, as a talking point for many years. I don't think we've really ever you know, demonstrate the ability to truly center a patient in our healthcare decision and remove barriers to health. That is my second point. I think we need to stay focused above the legislative and regulatory um, uh, um, discussions that will take place. I think above that, we need to remove barriers to health. Um, third, I think we have spent 50 years building a healthcare system around intervention at sickness and acute disease state. I think we need to take some of that energy that we applied over the past 50 years and, and pivot 190 degrees, if you will, or 180 degrees and go back and really invest significantly in primary care. And we're really excited to partner with people uh, to do that. And, and the reason that is so important is we have to start at the beginning of our uh, lives facilitating health for as long as possible. And that will start to address upstream cost issues. Great. Well, on that note, let's just remember to be patient-centered, to be preventative and focus on primary care and think about the disruption. So thank you so much, thank Sean you, and Sean, for this conversation. <laughs> thank you all for joining us here. And if you want to add your ideas or thoughts on the conversation, please use the hashtag postlive. My name is Lana Wong, and I thank you again for joining us. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello, thank you for joining us. For those of you just with us, I'm Frances Dietzel as a senior writer here at The Post, and I am delighted to be joined now by Atul Gamwandi, who is the Assistant Administrator for Global Health at USAID. It's a tough title, that one. <laughs> <laughs> and Julian Harris, who is the CEO of Concerto Care. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Delighted. So, Julian, I'd love to start with you. You are trained as a primary care physician, and that's really sort of the backbone of the healthcare system. Tell me what drew you to that profession at a time when many people are moving away from it and why it's such a key, important part of healthcare. Thanks so much for having me. And when I was a medical student, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease with Parkinsonian features. And so she had both memory challenges and also a movement <coughs> disorder. And I watched my grandfather basically spend his 80s, spend a decade, being the quarterback of my grandmother's care, working with her primary care provider, certainly, but doing a lot of the navigation with her neurologist, with her personal care attendants, with members of our family. And seeing the way that our healthcare system is so fragmented and the ways mm -hmm. that a family who has resources to support a patient and really many members of the care team also doing their best, but really still struggle to navigate without the ability of a primary care provider to have the time in the day for patients who have multiple chronic conditions when there's 15 minutes in that visit. And so I was always interested in health policy, but I hadn't made the decision around sort of what area to focus on within medicine and both that personal experience with my grandmother and then also understanding some of the challenges that we face with the broader healthcare system really drew me to primary care. So until Julian gives such a, a personal and important response to that question, but in this country we're seeing a shortage of primary care physicians, and I know you look at this around the world. What's going wrong here? Well, 
what I would say, I came into this role at USAID where my job is to lead foreign uh, assistance for global health outside our borders, but I'd come from 20 years of working on how we advance health systems everywhere, including in the United States. And one core thing that I've seen is there, the relationship between survival and income is generally extremely tight. It's like, um, it's almost one to one. Personal income and so. Yeah, the, the country's level of income, so the average income in the country. Okay. And, uh, and so the, you know, the more a country makes, the more people survive. But there are countries, there are countries that are outliers on that scale. The so, U.S. is one. We're, yeah. we're underperforming our income. Right. But then there are countries that are vastly outperforming their income. Um, uh, you wrote about some of them recently, and, and your series on life expectancy is fantastic. Thank you. Um, the, uh, the, an example of that is um, you talked about Portugal, 82-year life expectancy with a fraction of our income in the United States. Right. We peaked at 79 in 2015 and have been going down ever since. Um, uh, you had a chance to talk a little bit about that, uh, your colleague with Senator Cassidy earlier as well. Um, but I'd, I'd say that we have seen a number of these outliers. Costa Rica has the highest life expectancy along with Chile and Ecuador in North and South America, except for Canada. Um, they're at 82, uh, again, compared to our 79. Thailand, which has been receiving support from the US uh, government for advancing their health system, uh, made a focus on investing in primary care. And what do I mean by that? That means that they uh, have a high percentage of their national expenditure on health going to primary care. Um, in many countries like Thailand, Ethiopia, Costa Rica, it's 30, 40, 50% of the budget going there. We're at 8% in the United States. Say those numbers again. Um, well, so I'll give the most extreme example. Yeah. Uh, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, Costa Rica is over 30%, right, uh, wow. going to okay. primary health care. Um, you'll see in uh, Ethiopia, a country that uh, made a commitment starting 20 years ago that they would um, invest in community-based workers that could touch every household at least once a year. So it's not just people sitting in a clinic. This is, this is the key, critical right? component about primary right. health care. What we mean by primary health care is not just that there's a family physician sitting in a box waiting for you, uh, but that there is also an outreach worker, a community health worker, who touches every home because some large percentage of society in the United States, it's north of 20%, are disconnected from the healthcare yeah. system, have no regular point of contact. In, the, in other countries, it can be 40 or 50%. And having that outreach capacity with some health education, preventive remedies, vaccination capability, and assessing needs and saying, hey, you're pregnant, you, you need to come in now right. to, be cut, to get into your primary healthcare system and receive the appropriate care, or you, are, you have incipient Alzheimer's and, and you're disconnected from the system and no one, is, no one is helping you. That is what in Thailand, for example, have them now matching US life expectancy, being freed from most foreign assistance around global health, and they have a they have a 79 year life expectancy on $300 per person per year for healthcare. We spend 13,000. So Julian, taking those numbers again, thinking about what you see in the primary care world, we've got very few primary care physicians now compared with specialists. 
What's the impact of that that you see in this country on care and on individuals? Well, we've made decisions, I think, that have resulted in this kind of difference between the percentage of primary care providers. So right. in, in 1980, about 62% of physicians were some form of primary care physician. And by 2013... And by primary care, we mean everything from... Internal medicine, medicine. family medicine, pediatrics, OBGYN? some definitions, OBGYN, exactly. Okay. Um, by 2013, it was about uh, 38%. And so just watching sort of that, okay. that transition and, and the growing uh, percentage of physicians who go into specialties, I think really reflects some of the decisions we've made about the way our healthcare system is structured. When you look at other OECD countries, you know, the so percentage- So developed countries. Wealthier countries. Right. You see that the percentage of people who are in primary care is significantly higher in those countries and their investments in what we would call addressing the social determinants of health, so thinking about things like access to food, housing, and transportation are much higher than in the United States. Right. If you combine our healthcare spending and our spending on social services, the differences between the United States and other countries aren't as stark. But when you look specifically at how much we spend on healthcare, you see that we over-index on healthcare, under-index on addressing unmet social needs, and that's reversed in most of the other wealthy countries. And it's uneven, Julian, in different parts of the country, right? I mean, if you live in Boston, I imagine you have a better chance of getting into a system than if you're in some very rural part of America. Absolutely. We have real challenges with access to primary care. We both have challenges actually in rural areas, but in certain cases, there are actually access challenges even in, in urban areas. The, the access to primary care is uneven. So there are 100 million Americans who live in primary care uh, shortage areas. And so we have to think about how do we reimagine primary care? How do we think about an approach to primary care that leverages an interdisciplinary team, not just the sort of idea of the physician with the black bag, recognizing that nurse practitioners are going to be an important part of our, not just our present, but our future as we think about primary care. And then a broader approach to team-based care, thinking about the roles of social workers. We're recognizing that behavioral right. health care is also primary care. Right. And so how do we think about integrating social workers into the care team? Leveraging community health workers, the company that I run, Concerto Care, leverages interdisciplinary teams, technology, and data to care for some of the most complex patients, both seniors and adults who have multiple health conditions. And we actually employ community health workers. So we send people from the community who often have um, language concordance with the populations that they're serving or cultural concordance as well, really understand the community resources. And they partner with the patients, with their family members, and with the providers to ensure that we're addressing those patients' needs holistically. So I think we need to take a step back and sort of reimagine how we think about primary care, who's on that care team, and how we support those patients. So Atul, during my reporting, I talked to a doctor at Stellenbosch in South Africa, and he used a phrase that I don't think I've heard associated directly with primary care here. He talked about the common good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that philosophy and whether... Is ever a philosophy you could see the U.S. adopting in terms of providing this kind of entry-level care and gateway to more sophisticated, well, maybe sophisticated isn't right, but more specialized care after that? Well, the, the, the largest, this is the way I think about it. Yeah. Um, first, we have discovered in the last century how to make it so um, we can address most of the health needs in the world in substantial ways. So, uh, let me try to put it this way. We doubled the human lifespan in the last century. Yeah. We did it by discovering uh, a set of interventions. Um, there are 16,000 approved FDA drugs. There are 4,000 medical and surgical procedures. There's over 1,000 public health 
interventions that make a difference. Many our, of them coming out of this country, right? This is the place huge, of innovation. Out of this country. Our job now is to deploy that capability town by town to everybody alive. And I've argued right. it's the most ambitious endeavor human beings have ever had. It's hard for your, your, your grandparents trying to navigate, how do I get access to all right. of that? You need a scaffolding to build that distribution on, and the world is demonstrating that that scaffolding is primary care. Primary care meaning not just the clinician, but the team that Julian talked about. Um, there's a certain amount of reverse innovation going on. Uh, the common good is enabling that everybody in the community can access those, those assets out there in the world and getting more and more complicated as each year goes by. Um, they, uh, the reverse engineering is, or re reverse innovation is, the world discovered community health workers were a key linchpin of being able to make that accessible. Right. And those are the people who will have outreach and make sure people are not lost to the system, follow up on their hypertension management or the diabetes management or their malaria care, and, uh, and are connected into a primary health clinic with the medical treatment capability you need and access to public health services. That is the scaffolding, the common good, and it's the least expensive part of our system. We have um, the, the ability to build on that is generally around the world a public investment. Right. Um, it's very hard to build it as a private investment to serve the community because not everybody in the community signed up for this or that insurance plan. So around the world, most of the places have private um, uh, delivery in significant parts, but a public uh, core scaffolding that ensures that nobody's dropped out of it. I want to just follow up on that from my time and I was so lucky to go and investigate this in Portugal. And one of the um, public health doctors I talked to talked about the importance of community health workers meeting people before they even thought they needed to go to a primary care physician. And she said to me, you know, the future of our healthcare system is we need to invest more in that part of health and less in, I shouldn't say less, but we need to focus on that part, the pre-primary care part, not the post-primary care part. Is that message being heard in this country? Yes, I'll, I'll point out that we could not get to 95% plus vaccination of the elderly in COVID until President Biden got funding in the American Rescue Plan that allowed us to hire 100,000 plus community health workers across the country, hired by states and cities, who went knocking door to door, people from the community to, uh, and, and we built that, we had to build that, that core scaffolding overnight. And that got us past 75, 80% to 95%. And no, there, there wasn't the Republican Democratic divide. It was everybody getting access and uh, you needed that investment to make it possible. And, and we've demonstrated we can do it here. So Julian, I grew up in Britain. My father and brother both used to make home visits. Mm. Um, and I can remember it would interrupt them on their way home from work or whatever than that. I, and one quick anecdote, I can remember my, my brother saying he'd asked a child whether any, with asthma whether anybody at home, whether his parents smoked. And the kid said no. My brother went, went to the home and found that granny was in the background smoking like a chimney and there was smoke all over the house. Mm -hmm. The kid had answered honestly, but my brother hadn't known the question to ask. Mm -hmm. What is the importance of home health care? And what are you doing through Concerto to try and advance that? We know that 
now eight out of 10 seniors want to age in place in their homes. And one of the things we talk a lot about at Concerto Care is we really have the privilege of caring for patients in their homes to have the ability to be invited into their homes to cross that threshold and to really have an opportunity to see them in a more fulsome way. What are the challenges that they're facing with physical barriers that might be fall risk for the patients? How do they manage their medications? In many cases, a patient's medications may be in the kitchen and in their bedroom and in the den and in different places. And so you may actually discover that the patient is taking two different hypertension medicines when only one is actually supposed to be in active use. We are also really focused on thinking about how we leverage technology. I think that you know, part of my optimism for primary care is that we are going to have, over the next decade, much more robust utilization of, for example, remote patient monitoring tools that give us data around how our patients who have chronic conditions like congestive heart failure or... So like wearing a pressure, blood, a blood pressure, pressure cuff. Um, some, things, some things are, I'm going to say in air quotes, basic. A scale for helping a patient who has congestive heart failure to see whether or not their fluid levels are higher or lower, their weights have gone up. Or thinking about how we support patients who have COPD, who have chronic lung disease, typically from smoking. When I also think about the ways that we have, I think another panel spoke to this earlier, really made many aspects of the practice of medicine much more challenging because of the ways that electronic health records were designed. Really, electronic health records at core are as much about sort of administrative processes and billing as they are about care. And I think most physicians would say, you know, significantly more about those things. And so you do hear stories about the percentage of time that physicians are spending using the electronic health record, in many cases after the patient has left the office, in many cases in the evening, as, as Senator Cassidy spoke to, when, when they'd otherwise be spending time with their families. I am a physician. I'm also married to a physician, so I get to, <laughs> a busy to experience man. this as well. <laughs> and, and so I think as we sort of reimagine what technology looks like, um, we saw the VA yesterday announce that they're going to have a competition around the role of AI and thinking about how to leverage voice-to-text technology to accelerate the sort of shift in the physician's time from typing in the computer to actually being able to just have a conversation with their patients and then have the technology capture that conversation and input it into to their electronic health record or the time their staff might spend actually collecting records. And so I think we're on a path to sort of think about a different approach to practicing primary care. And for us, in the context of delivering care and services in the home, our providers also being able to just have a conversation the way that we are now and not have that laptop sort of um, waiting down the conversation and disrupting. I think we're also going to see a much more comprehensive approach to care for patients who really need people thinking about all of their chronic conditions, their unmet behavioral health needs, and the fact that in many cases, the things that they don't talk about in the doctor's office, like there isn't enough food in the refrigerator, right. and that may actually increase their risk of being rehospitalized right. after a discharge, right. or the fact that there are some of the other fall risks that, that I mentioned earlier. Those are some of the things I think we get a unique insight into when we deliver Excellent. care. Excellent. I'd love to ask you about this on an international scale again. I had a trip to Vietnam where um, women who were delivering babies in very remote areas had cell phone contact, um, or, the, or the women they worked with. In some ways, some countries have sort of been in advance of the United States, it seems to me. The, the way I use it is, uh, and think of it is our foreign assistance plays several roles. One is um, advancing you know, 
equity in uh, health and survival around the world. Another is protecting our country against health threats from abroad. But a third, I think, is about innovation and how you drive to scale. Because in many countries, they don't have all of the doctors and medical infrastructure and everything else we have. And you can discover new things there. So for example, sort of related to uh, Julian's point, um, bringing digital capabilities in to support um, uh, advancement of services is a, is a opportunity we're, we're, we're using elsewhere. So I'll give one specific example. We are now in seven countries deploying uh, AI read, so artificially intel mm. artificial intelligence software reading chest x-rays um, that mm. people have. And, uh, and so for example, Nigeria is one of those countries, not enough radiologists to support community-based screening for tuberculosis. And we can now screen large numbers of people with a, a digital chest x-ray system you carry in a backpack can be deployed right. in a primary health clinic right. um, and then gives you a reading right away. The reading shows a suspicion of TB. You can then do a, a portable molecular test and give them a diagnosis of TB and then get them on treatment. And in the last year, it's contributed to a 40% jump in catching TB cases getting and getting people under treatment. That um, uh, is a testing ground for innovation that then often can go back. PEPFAR, the, the massive HIV program that has 25 million people who are uh, uh, benefiting from uh, um, a support that keeps them alive with HIV in countries that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, um, uh, that is up for reauthorization and, a, and, and something that's very important to succeed. But the innovations there led to once a day dosing of HIV medication, which is now benefiting Americans and, uh, and people around the world. And it's simplified it so now primary care physicians are caring for uh, the majority of the, uh, can care for the majority of people with HIV in a way that you needed specialized clinics before. There's this force of technology innovation uh, in both digital terms, but also in the way we're discovering things that is simplifying what is possible to be done at that community level in the home, uh, in the primary care clinic, and, uh, and I think is a shift that actually makes it more exciting to be in a generalized space like primary care. So I love being the only person to ask questions, but we have audience <laughs> questions coming in, and I'm going to have to share some time. And this one comes from Mark Havens, and it's a question for you, Julian. Mark Havens from Washington says, the U.S. population is rapidly aging. By 2040, we're expecting one in three adults to be over 65 in my community, the oldest population center in the Pacific Northwest. How will the American healthcare system cope with so many older people consuming a disproportionate amount of health service? It's a fantastic question. By 2030, all 76 million baby boomers will be over the age of 65. Say that again. By 2030, by 2030 all 76 million baby boomers will be over the age of 65. <laughs> and many of us with chronic illness as well, I bet. It's around the corner. And I think that we have to take a step back and sort of ask what kind of healthcare system we want and how do we think about our priorities in terms of being able to afford those investments over time. In a, in a prior role, I worked in the Office of Management and Budget here in D.C. and spent a lot of time thinking about the sustainability of, right. of the federal budget and, and the Medicare program in particular. And I think we have a real opportunity to take a step back and ask, how do we balance our objectives around improving the quality of the system, but also recognize that we can leverage value-based care 
to help drive not just quality, but also affordability. We've seen that there's actually been strong bipartisan consensus that this is a lever that we need to continue to invest in. But we also know that the efforts so far have had great promise, but there's also opportunity to continue to improve. So I think from an affordability perspective, I think that's one of the levers where there's the broadest consensus. We also have to think about how do we prioritize sort of the approach to primary care. We were talking about this a bit earlier. You know, when we take a step back and ask, you know, how do we deploy primary care providers and, and think about that in the context of other sites of care like the emergency department? Right. We know we spend $32 billion a year in ER care right. for services that could have actually been delivered in the context of primary care. And so part of our effort, I think, over the next decade really has to be about thinking about the right side of care mm. and also thinking about how we best leverage providers who may be more likely to think about the patient holistically, getting back to this balance between primary care and specialty care. I think when you go to see a specialist, it's much more likely that you're going to have a procedure done or an imaging study done or be started on a medication that if a primary care provider was engaged in thinking about you holistically, the, the result might be different. And so I think that's one of the reasons why primary care providers have been more successful in value-based care arrangements than other provider categories. I want to squeeze in one last question. It's a kind of big one. Um, and I learned this really very recently, although the trend's been going on. Amazon, CVS, Walmart have all been moving into the primary care field. Um, just very quickly from both of you, if you can manage it, is this, a, is this the way we need to move forward? Is the market the way we need to move forward? Or do you have other answers? Go first. I'm sorry, quick. But. So I'm, this isn't a dodge. I'm going to say it's actually too early to tell, right? So there's yep. been a, a relatively recent uh, sort of investment by a number of the large diversified health services companies in expanding their, their infrastructure and capabilities. And I think that they're doing that in part because they recognize the important role of primary care in driving affordability to the prior question. What I'm really focused on is how do we think about enabling not just that set of providers who are connected to organizations that can provide a lot of resources and infrastructure, but that broader set of independent primary care providers and ensuring that they have the tools and the technology and supports they need I'm to stop you there. I'm going to give you 10 seconds or so. <laughs> yeah, what, what I'll say is there's no solution that doesn't engage private sector, public sector, and, um, uh, and the financing mechanisms to pull it together. Uh, you wrote about the uh, uh, US government and HHS are coming forward with a primary care strategy, and that's going to be important. The, people recognize now how important this is, and I think we will see uh, uh, approaches that will make it possible for us to get the advantages of this massive uh, advancement in, in our life expectancy potential, but we, are, uh, we, are, we have a lot of discovery to go. Julian, until thank you so much for joining us today. That was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Francis. That concludes our programming for the day, but those of you who know us know to go to WashingtonPostLive.com. For further programming, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.